You ever wonder what it's like being a young actor? And it's like, hey, you know, you're you're 17 years old, and you're told, all right, your next episode is going to be a romance plot with you and this other actress who is 10 years older than you, and you're going to have to kiss her on screen. What do you think goes through your mind in that moment? Like, I'm sure at a certain point, older actors are just like, okay, whatever. Like, it doesn't mean anything. But you're relatively new to the acting scene. So, like, I don't know. I've, I've never, <laughs> I've never, never been able to process that. It's the kind of thing that I just look at, like, what do you say to that? Like, what was going through Will Wheaton's mind when, when he had to do all this? So, <clears throat> this episode, um, uh, this episode was written by a, a writing duo who have done work on a total of three episodes for Star Trek The Next Generation. Those episodes are this one, which they did the original story for, uh, The Outrageous Okana, which they did script work for, and The Royale, which they did script work for. Um, <laughs> I don't know what else I have to really add to that. All three of these episodes are, in my opinion, unremarkable at best. And if I'm being absolutely fair, I would call them not good. And so I look at these episodes like, God, what do I have to say about this? And of course, this is a romance plot, and I don't have anything to say about romance. It's me. I'm, I'm a robot. Beep boop. Technically, I'm the Lich King, but don't tell anyone. So I look at this episode like, God, oh, what am I saying? I have an entire page of notes here for this episode, so buckle in. First thing I want to talk about is, uh, well, actually, the second thing I want to talk about. So, Wes is like, oh my god, here's lovely lady. And lovely lady's like, oh my god, you're super awesome. And they geek out for a bit. It was a nice little, neat little scene. I actually liked it. Um, but then Riker immediately figures out what's going on uh, with Wes. And Wes is like, oh man, she's amazing. And that is the first thing I want to talk about. I've been a teenager. Long, long time ago. No. And uh, I remember what it was like being that stupid. And I'm just going to say that as bluntly as I can. I don't know how many of you out there look back with embarrassment at your teenage uh, flirting slash dating years, but I do. <laughs> I look back like, really, kid? Really? I just want to go back in time and smack myself. Bam! Wake up. Huh? But she's so wonderful. No, she isn't. Chill. <laughs> just just chill. Use the brain, not the other one. Oh, okay. You know. <laughs> but I mention that because this episode does this pretty much consistently throughout the whole episode. It is, I suppose the word I want to use is realistic with regards to how a teenager having his first crush would really act. And let's call it what it is. This is a crush. Um, so it's realistic and it's believable. But that doesn't necessarily make it good. And it also means the entire episode is centered around this fact. No, seriously. Despite the fact that this episode has three separate points, which are all interesting to me, and engaging and fun, and there's some cool ideas there, this episode takes all those ideas, usually gives them one or maybe two lines of backstory, and then flings them out the window and spends all its time and effort and focus on Wesley. Why? Like, I'm, I'm sorry, I know why. I know the answer to this. But it almost feels like someone made this this beautiful, amazing, like, well-crafted cake, right? Just bear with me. 
And this cake is like, it's, it de it's delicate, but it's intricate. It's got these amazing designs and it's brilliant. It, it tastes brilliant. And they say, all right, you can have a bite of the cake and then we're going to feed you some McDonald's. Like, that's what this episode felt like. Get the one bite. And now that we've put all that effort into something that's amazing, here, eat this freaking cheeseburger. <laughs> Not a good cheeseburger either, a McDonald's cheeseburger. It's also irritating to me because, I, I should clarify, it's all about Wesley's relationship, but really, this is actually two very typical stories kind of dovetailed into each other. There's the youth and love, Wesley, obvious, and then there's the uh, the trapped princess story. I'm not sure if that's actually what it's supposed to be called, if that's a proper terminology or whatever, but you know what I mean by that, right? Jasmine in, uh, in Aladdin is a perfect example, or Ariel in Little Mermaid, right? You know, the, oh, I, this is what I must do, but I only yearn to be free, you know. It's a fairly typical story, even back in the 80s when this came out. So, skipping forward a little bit, there's this scene where uh, he's screwing up at work. Realistic. I want to say really quick, I, I hold nothing against Will Wheaton for this episode. I actually think he did a surprisingly good job of portraying a, a teenager in love. And I'm going to call it that because this isn't love. This is crush at best, like I said, uh, perhaps ironically. So, you know, he's just like, oh, sorry, sorry, yeah, I'm, I'm looking. And uh, Jordy, of course, gets rather frustrated at him, obviously, since Jordy is literally, he's got his own thing going on. But I bring this up because there's this line he says, which is literally, oh, She's perfect. I went back and counted at this point in the episode. The total's time from him spotting her to her rounding the corner. The total time of not just interaction, but visual access to this girl was 29 seconds. Now again, I get it. Oh my god, you're so pretty. I get that. And I will even go so far as to say it's not just visual, and I kind of want to give praise for that. Too often, I think, fiction tends to... I mean, DS9 actually did this a uh, little bit ago with... Um, oh, I can't remember the name of the episode. The forgettable episode with the, the mental projection lady. <laughs> um, you know, it, it'll portray it as so that someone sees someone else... And then because they have had visual interaction with that person, they have decided they're in love. And I'm going to keep using that word because that's what that is. Like, you need something a little bit more like the personality or the emotions or the intellect or anything else to connect with someone on a real level. If they're pretty, you know, no judgment. There's nothing wrong with finding someone else pretty or handsome or attractive or sexy or whatever. That's not the problem. The problem is too often fiction tends to portray someone as finding someone that and then presuming, based on that singular fact, that the totality of the relationship is is assumed. It's just there, right? Well, they're so handsome. Therefore, I must love them forever. Now, to give this episode credit, she doesn't. she isn't just pretty... She comes over and is like, that's a such-and-such, such, isn't it? I, I forget what it was. It, it's an electromagnet or whatever. It's like, oh my god, yes, you're right. This is. And, you know, they, they start they start geek-talking just a little bit. And I like that because what that demonstrates is now two things for Wesley. One, she's pretty. And two, she has similar interests. 
Now that's a little bit better of a foundation in my opinion, and I like that they bothered to add that little extra tidbit there. You know, having them geek out a little bit. So, credit where credit is due. Then comes an interesting series of scenes. So first, uh, you know, he, he tries to get some advice from Jordy, and Jordy's like, I'm busy, dude. Which is funny, given Jordy's infamous lack of success when it comes to women in the future. Um, then he goes to Worf, who's like, this is what Klingon mating is like. And I kind of like that that presentation was given. I also like that Worf pretty much says, no, no, this isn't for you, this is for us. Then Data starts giving his opinion, and and then he goes to Riker. Now, I like all of this, but I want you to keep it in mind, okay? He goes to Geordi, Worf, Data, and Riker, some of the most senior staff on the Enterprise, for relationship advice, okay? Keep that in your mind. So then there is by far my favorite scene in the entire episode, because there's this wonderful, great scene where Jonathan Frakes and Whoopi Goldberg just act off each other for like a couple minutes. And it's, <laughs> it works. The dialogue is absolutely awful, but it works because the actors manage to portray it just perfectly. As they're just, Riker's like, no, yes, you're the stars. I dream of a galaxy where your eyes are the stars. And it's just incredibly terrible lines like that. And he says it so perfectly. And then Whoopi Goldberg's like, oh. Yeah, I don't think this is me. Shut up, kid. That is such an awesome scene. I love that scene. That scene is worth the rest of the episode by itself. <clears throat> um, I also want to say that, and this is no surprise because she's usually a spot of, of you know goodness within an otherwise eh episode. Guinan was good in this episode. She only had a couple of appearances, but each time she was good. As ever, credit to Whoopi Goldberg and credit to her inclusion into this show. I know that in more recent years, there's been some more uh, controversy regarding the implementation of Guinan in the show. And I know that I tend to have an anti-controversial tint, but having actually looked at this one and read people's arguments, I actually don't agree here. I don't think her skin color really is something that is a part of her character. Quite the contrary, I think it's actually irrelevant to her character which I think is the point, that she is this calm, wise, awesome character, and that's who she is. She's Guinan, not Black Guinan. My opinion. And I think that scenes like these in this episode kind of help to showcase why I enjoy her presence on the show. Lord knows she has some wonderful chemistry with Patrick Stewart. Um, she already has, Measure of a Man, and she will in the future, of course, but... I'm not with it on that one. <clears throat> anyway, so she was good. There's a great scene later on. You know, uh, Salia runs out, and then Guinan, like, rushes over, like, uh, okay, right, right. Like, you can almost see going through Guinan's mind, right, this is his first crush, this is his first girlfriend. I need to inform him of how this works. So she, like, she's like, just because a girl runs out doesn't mean she doesn't want you to follow her. And the one's like, oh, oh, right, okay, okay, yes, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. That was nice. Again, nice little tidbit there. <clears throat> So, um, let's talk about Anya's perspective really quick. Because Anya is like, I cannot allow any threat whatsoever to this child. Therefore, I will do anything necessary to ensure nothing happens to this child. Okay. Problem is, it's exaggerated to the point of effectively being meaningless. She comes across as a caricature rather than someone who has any depth to her. 
indeed, I could actually define her by literally only two points, overprotective and you're my daughter. Now, I know those two don't feel like different things, but my point is the actress, who does a decent job, no, no complaints there, the actress who portrays her portrays her as either psychotically overprotective, uh, one might even call her violently overprotective, and then, you know I really love you, right? You know, that kind of connective tissue between her and Salia. And then there's nothing in between. There's nothing else, for that matter. It's just those two perspectives. But I bring this up because, and I know this is going to sound weird, but if you take something uh, to a sufficient extreme, it stops having meaning. If she is so overprotective of her that she's worried about routine maintenance on efficiency on the engines and the ship, if she is so insanely overprotective that she's worried about someone being sick on the same ship as her charge, then we need to take that to the extreme in all other conditions, in all other cases. Let me, let me phrase this in a real-life context to try and get my point across. The argument can and has been leveled that, if, I've said this myself, um, if something has a 1% chance of going catastrophically bad, you shouldn't do it right? However, by that logic, you should never drive your car because driving is incredibly dangerous. It's, it's mundane because we all do it all friggin' day and you know, millions upon millions of people drive every day without incident, no less. But it is very dangerous and things can go very badly very quickly while driving, Right? That's what I mean by, by when you take, take something to a sufficient extreme, it just loses meaning. Because at that point, you shouldn't do anything. You shouldn't even be okay with being on a ship. There's just, they could be ambushed by Ferengi or Romulans or the Borg, although we haven't met them yet. You know, there's, there's just too many things. They could hit a nebula, which replaces their captain with, like, an energy being. Because that happened. I'm never letting anyone forget about that. Right? If she's going to be overprotective, you need to bring it back a little bit closer to the realm of reality. And that brings me to something that I've been talking about a lot lately on stream, and I haven't really brought up in my ruminations. It's called, uh, just go with it. Because too often fiction, uh, especially Hollywood when it comes to television and movies, have this mentality of just go with it. Now, to explain what I mean by that, it's something that doesn't quite logically make sense in character, in universe, but most viewers are just kind of like, yeah, okay, because that makes sense from what we know out of character, right? Like, it's acceptable that the the, the police detective is going to go with the cop because we know the cop is right, and therefore the police detective should be willing to go with this because he's right. You know, it, just to name an example right off the top of my head, it's, it's a very, very common thing, and I'm sure most of you could come up with other examples if you think about it. Which brings me to this episode. They try to exemplify this overprotectiveness to the point where she decides to actively transform, <laughs> try to attack, and then threaten both Worf and the ship in general over the safety of her charge. Now, we're, we, we're just kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. But if you actually think about it, all she's doing is doing everything in her power to further endanger her charge, logically. Being infiltrative, or, like, if she really is that overproductive, being infiltrative and just sneaking in and, you know, just a little scorpion stab or whatever, or being sufficiently uh, overprotective to the point where maybe she would want to 
try and not cause trouble or give anyone any reason to try and cause harm to her because she being harmed might actually be a problem for her charge, right? I mean, you see where I'm going with this, but we're just supposed to go with it because the whole point is the reveal. Which brings me to my next point. Why is this a reveal? In fact, I got a better question for you. Why is she an Elasimorph? Why is Salia an Elasimorph? Explain to me what purpose that serves to the story. By all means, I'll listen. I read every one of you guys' comments. I really do. So if you guys got something, I'm listening, because I got nothing. <laughs> the closest thing I got is, you know, love bypasses boundaries for Wesley. But that's never really analyzed or discussed, other than the fact that she has to insist that, yes, I actually do have real emotions, just because I'm not human. Which is something that's incredibly stupid. But again, teenager, you know. <laughs> I mean, you have to figure that it's a, that you would presume that someone who is not human has emotions, because there are a lot of not-humans in the Federation. Just on this ship, for that matter. Yeah, I know, I know. The shows tend to be human-centric. Whatever, you get the point. Um, <laughs> but I bring this up further because this this episode was not scored by Ron Jones. I, I've been keeping track as we go through. And it's so obvious each time he's not because the music tends to be inappropriately used or have the wrong tone. I can't tell you how many times it's been like, huh? Like, let me give you a specific example. There's this scene where she morphs on camera for the first time. Anya does. And then the music is like, da -na -na -na, she's a shapeshifter. But this is the third time we've had her shapeshift. She started, I mean, you think we weren't paying attention when all of a sudden there's just this random young woman in the room where there was no one before, or there was just Anya before, and then she shifts into the little furry thing. Again, off camera. Do you really presume we're that stupid? Well, again, given the uh, the other two episodes I mentioned, I guess they do actually presume we are that stupid. So what the hell do I know? Um, and I'm looking at my notes here. Sorry, I kind of strayed a little bit here. One of the one of the creators, I forget whom, mentioned something uh, about how they were sad that there was no real conflict in this episode. Like, that was a bad thing. Now, that kind of irritates me a little bit, because I'm one of those people who firmly believes against the threat of the weak mindset. I have been championing the not threat of the weak uh, mentality for story design for a really long time now. <laughs> Way longer than I've ever had this show. So, you know, I, I, it irritates me because, you know, people look at the episode like, for just to name one off the top of my head, Family, over in season four, Right. Like, you can't have it. There are people who would say you can't have an episode like that. In fact, when we get there, I will discuss how they had to fight for that episode to even happen. Because, well, there's no conflict of the week. Uh-huh. Although, obviously, there was also some space stuff. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Point being, despite this mentality, they actually do have a threat of the week. It's Anya. And I'm sorry, that's not me being technical. Because I don't think she's a threat of the week. But the episode really wants me to think that. Every time she interacts with someone else, she is incredibly antagonistic. She flat-out threatens Worf to his face and Picard to his face. I am more powerful than you could possibly imagine. Like, she's practically got the vampire ego syndrome going on, right? Or, since we recently went through the Legion Lauren, she's practically acting like one of the Legion demons. <laughs> I am super amazing! You found me out! I mean, it even fits. She's even a shapeshifter. <sighs> and then... It's over, because they they leave, they're done. 
Oh yeah, that, that reminds me of an interesting question. Um, <clears throat> why didn't the episode end at about the thirty-three minute mark? Like I remember, I'm jotting my notes down. I look up and I look at the episode. And it's got like fifteen minutes left or whatever. And I just stare at that. Like that doesn't seem right. The episode's concluded. All of the story arcs are done, and the last fifteen or it's actually like twelve minutes or so just sort of meander. I have very little to say about that period of time because nothing really happens. Um, I do like I'm not even commenting on the Wesley Holodeck thing, although I do like its usage here. Uh, I wish they did more, but obviously special effects, budget, I get it. But I do like its usage, the idea of you're not going to see a lot of other worlds, let me show you these other worlds. Um, I do like how Wesley is stupid enough to insist that she could do something like stay on the ship and not go because there's no way in hell that's actually going to happen. Um, you know, I, I do wonder why it is that you know, these people being shapeshifters is unusual since for some reason the Federation, like, like, I guess the Federation is incompetent? I mean, Lord knows that's pretty much the predominant theme of season one, right? But let, let's look at this timeline here. So there's this race of people, which we'll cover, but I haven't even talked about them yet. And they've been at war for forever, and or at least conflict for forever. And they want the Federation to be a neutral party to take one of their children over here along with a caretaker so that they can be taken care of. Obviously, that caretaker wasn't overprotective then because we don't hear any issues about that, right? Anyways, so the Federation does so and never scans them or does a routine medical check or anything whatsoever. And so they just automatically assume that they're just human because... Why would we learn anything about this random species that reaches out to the Federation? How did they even know about the Federation? How did the Federation not know about them? Everyone acts like these people being Elasimorphs is unusual. And like, oh my gosh, we had no idea. I, I believe a direct uh, quote from Picard is, I've never seen anything like it. What? <laughs> I know, I know. Just go with it. So, um, I do like Picard scene with Wesley. I think it's exactly what it should be. It shows how Picard does have a degree of caring about Wesley. I like that. It does show that he treats him with a degree of respect, which I like, and it does show that he expects him to basically act like Picard does. Picard has feelings and emotions, and I will cover this throughout the whole of the series, but the duty, the responsibility, you know, that comes first. So Wes... I don't like to interfere with this kind of thing, but in this case, I gotta insist. I'm, and he doesn't say I'm sorry, but it gets across. And I like that Wesley, and again, credit to a Wheaton on this one, he takes several seconds to respond as he's just, you know, processing and, and he's like, th you can just see him thinking it through, like, I, I don't want to do this. And, you know, it's almost like he's trying to figure out some way around this, like some way to finagle through this. And nope, he's got nothing. So he just says, okay, sir. I did like that. Good scene. Good scene. And um, then Salia gets out. <laughs> and goes to meet Wesley. Now, i got to be honest. When I first saw this episode, I remember thinking, oh, my God, it's Anya, and, and she's come to kill Wesley. And then Anya shows up. So, no, that actually was Salia. How did she get out? Now, I... I I know the episode hints about that. It says, oh, we have erected a force field, so no matter how small they become, they won't get out. That is such a hand wave. I mean, we could probably come up with some kind of way that she could get out if she goes down to, like, a frickin' microscopic level or whatever, or that of a bug to squeeze under the door or whatever. But 
at the same time, I look at this like, really? That's where we're going with this? She just gets out. In spite of the overprotective mother, who apparently isn't looking long enough to see it. Now, I know, I know, she was sleeping. But obviously she was, you know, she follows her seconds later. Now, I bring that up for two reasons. Number one, because this time when watching the episode, I was like, oh, that's Anya. And then I paused, I was like, wait, no, that isn't Anya. I forgot about that, because it's so obvious, the way presenting it, like, this is Anya. She's almost acting out of character. But number two, what's up with the Elasimorphs? That scene, the whole we shrunk down to whatever to get out, which is never explained, just go with it. Um, that scene ruins what is, in my opinion, an otherwise very interesting species. Hear me out, okay? I'm going to talk for a little bit. I don't need my notes for this because I've been prepping for this. The changelings over on DS9, you know, Odo, basically magic, right? I've talked about that over there. The amount, there's ways we could probably tech tech around this, but functionally speaking, the way they completely ignore volume and mass and function, they're basically magic. The fact that Odo can just into a little cup is basically magic. Now, I'm okay with that, to be clear. That's not a complaint. It's just something I feel we need to acknowledge, right? But the Elasimorphs are actually a far more realistic take on shapeshifters, aside from the shrinking thing, and I wish they did more with that. So, throughout this episode, we learn a few things about them, and this is mentioned in some of the ancillary works as well, about how the Elasimorphs can shapeshift, but they generally have to shapeshift into something else that is a living thing. To explain what I mean by that, Odo, functionally, does not have organs or eyes or anything like that. He looks like he does, but if you were to think about him, he's kind of like a hologram, actually, like the Doctor. There's nothing inside there other than just the empty space or the energy or the mass or whatever, right? Sense make? But an elasimorph has to actually turn into the new species with a heart and lungs and spine and neck and all those other internal organs that make them function. This is why elasimorphs still require food and sleep and can still be affected by disease because their immune system is dependent on their current form. I like that idea. I like the idea of someone who can shapeshift, but has to shapeshift into something that functions. It would also, there, there's so much that you could do with this. Like, for example, and of course the episode does nothing about this, but maybe make it so that shapeshifting is very strenuous or difficult. To explain what I mean by that, let's say that I'm sitting here and I shapeshift into a new form. As I do so, I am effectively a brand new, you know, Vulcan or whatever, right? I have completely shifted around my body to be that of a biological Vulcan. But it's also a biological Vulcan at full adult status who has not eaten or drunk in a while. like and, Or breathed, for that matter. Like, those first few moments should be like, whoa. Oh, and then, you know, getting a drink, getting some food in me because I'm, I'm suffering from blood sugar issues, right? Because there's nothing in me to help power me. Too many people think, you know, just ignore the fact that living beings need some sort of fuel in order to function. In fact, it's actually been pointed out before that Vulcans themselves bypass this rule way too much because Vulcans logically should be taking in way more calories than they do in order to keep their, their brains and their bodies powered functionally. Yes? We're going to be out for a bit if you need to check your router. Oh, okay. I I was yes. <laughs> thank thank you. Have fun. Um 
So I know we already kind of bypassed this rule in Star Trek in general. But I like the idea of these Elasimorphs being basically chained to the idea that shapeshifting is hard and requires more or less immediate recovery. Right? And of course, they still need to intake in order to function. It would also partially explain certain things, like why she would run around as a little furry thing, which logically would require less upkeep than most other forms, or the old woman, for that matter. Um, there's a lot you could do with that idea, and I wish they did more with it. They don't. <laughs> and all of it is, like I said, kind of thrown out the window by the fact that, uh, apparently, they never explain this at all, but apparently they shrunk down to something so small that it snuck out of the room and no one noticed it, and then zoomed right back up in order to interact with Wes. <sighs> Anywho. So, then they get to the planet. And they're like, oh my god, we've got this mega super powerful booster to, to send a communication signal through. It's so powerful, it's, it's more energy than the entire Enterprise can generate. Which is pretty damn impressive. Oh, it's also got some beam down co coordinates. Let me say that again in case you missed that. The Enterprise physically lacks the ability to communicate with the planet. But, can beam down no problem. I could dissect that and how little that makes sense, but just go with it. So, <clears throat> we cut to Wes. He's all pissy. And... <laughs> I know human beings tend to make exaggerative claims a lot, but I notice in fiction too often someone will say something exaggerative to emphasize it. It's actually a subset of the 10,000 years problem. You know, the, the, the Doctor Who syndrome. You know, it's got to be this huge thing. Why? Because that way it sounds huge. There's this line that Salia has where we are like unlike anything you could ever imagine. Because the idea of a light energy being is just apparently beyond imagining in Star Trek. Never mind in real life where we, you know, we have tons of things like that. Uh, whatever, whatever. Then she leaves, thank God. And then we have this great scene, really. With Guinan and Wes. Because, of course, Guinan is awesome. So Guinan, um, Guinan is there, and she's talking to Wes. And it's this great interaction. And Guinan is so honest with Wes. It feels like the only scene in the whole episode that was written by an honest-to-God human being rather than a caricature. And I mean that with, with sincerity. There's some other good character bits here and there, but this is great. You know, you will never feel like this again. Every time you love will feel differently, and that doesn't make it any better. And that's just honest truth. It's probably one of the best codas I've seen so far in TNG, going you know through, th through season one up to season two. I like that, because it's just honest truth. However, why is there a West romance in this episode? Hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. I'm okay with doing romance if you do something with it, if there's some purpose behind it. Uh, for the character, for the setting, for the plot, you know, something. But this feels like here's Wes's first crush, the end. And as is so typical with early TNG, uh, and especially late TNG, this, it feels like it has no impact. Like this is never covered again. And because I don't like to criticize without offering some kind of alternate suggestion, I wanted to toss this idea at you. I would have a couple other people, uh, younger people, closer to Wes's age, you know, late teens, early 20s, probably at least one of them actually in a uniform, you know, very young, 
probably their their uh, I can't remember what that's called the crew the first mission you do like you take some actual uh, real life experience uh, basically the equivalent of being a uh, thingy I can't think of the term oh my god I can't think of the word in real life it's a thing where you get on the job experience and I can't freaking think of the name of it but whatever that right. So we have younger people. That's the important part. And I want at least one of them to be male. This is important to me. I'll, I'll explain why in a second. So have Guinan give her final words to, to Wes and have Wes to be like, hmm. And then have Guinan get up, pat him on the shoulder a little bit. It's like, we, I've been there, kid. Wander off. And then have one of those people, preferably the guy, hear me out, who's uh, who's been seen throughout the episode in Wes's range kind of walk over and be like, hey, you look kind of down. And I would have Wes, you know, if I'm directing, I'd talk to Wheaton, I'd be like, all right, you talked very naturally to to Guinan just now, right? I want you to use the same general tone and inflection. You're still down, but you're not awkward. That's very important. You're you're just naturally talking to this total stranger. It's like, you know, hey, and he's like, hey, what's going on? Oh, there's this girl and blah, blah, blah. You know, just just a brief recap, very brief. And have Wesley look up, and the guy's like, man, I'm sorry, I've been there too. You know, there's this wonderful guy. And just this brief thing, and have him kind of trail off a bit. Like, anyways, uh, my name's, you know, blah, blah, blah. What's yours? Uh, well, you know, my name's Wesley Crusher. Then have a bit of a handshake, and then have him just kind of start chatting. And have the camera kind of leave as they're chatting. Now, that's important to me, because you remember how earlier the people Wesley went to for relationship advice were Jordy, Worf, Data, and Riker. That's easy. Wesley already has a connection to the upper staff. Like it or not. You know, we are at this point, that's where we're at with Wesley as a character. He just is connected with the upper echelons of the staff and the, the Enterprise, the, the command crew, right? They're easy. They know him. He, he knows they're not going to judge him. He knows they got his back. But he's never seen interacting with other people around his age range. He doesn't have, let's put this as bluntly as we can, friends buddies right people you just sit and chat with right so i like the idea in fact i love the idea that wes this experience has a long-term impact on wesley this is how you make it matter not this is why i said it's so important that he's a guy because wesley as portrayed is obviously interested in girls but to have him go through this relationship issue and kind of crack him a little bit, hurt him, but in so doing, offer up to him the idea of being more open to others in his age range, rather than staying in the safe zone, reaching out a little bit. That's why I said it's so important that he acts naturally to this guy. And that's why I say it's important that it's a guy. Because the first step of breaking out of that kind of anxiety bubble is getting used to interactions with other people in general. Then you work your way up to something more romantic or something more intimate or something more familial, right? You see where I'm going with that? I think that way, and of course, obviously future episodes will have to carry forward with this idea, but that way we can have Wesley kind of opening up a little bit, developing a little bit, and have that matter in the future. Now, normally I'd chop off here, but I'm not going to because I want to talk about one other thing. I saved it for last. Because there were three things that really struck me about this episode. One is what I just talked about, the Wesley developing thing. The other was the Elasimorphs, which I already talked about. The third thing is this planet. We have a planet 
which has uh, I forget what the proper scientific term is, but it, it one side is dark and one side is light pretty much all the time, right? Because of the way the, the planet rotates. So you have two wildly different species who have been developed, who I don't think we ever even get a species name for them. The Denebians? I don't know. Um, and these two species, or perhaps cultural groups, they could literally just be different cultures, uh, have developed completely differently and have been in conflict with each other for basically all of their history. All of this makes sense and is a great backdrop. Like, you've got an interesting idea there. And then a member of the leadership of both sides gets together. Those two people get together, have a child, and then spirit that child away so that child can be raised in neutral territory and then can come back with a strong blood claim on the throne of both areas and, in so doing, also have uh, blood, you know, tribal ties, basically, to both species or cultures, thus being a way to try and bridge that gap. That's a great idea. That makes perfect sense. Something like that happened in Battletech, actually. Just to use another example of that, you know. Lord knows that's happened in real life plenty of times. I like that idea. And they don't do anything with it. It's like a throwaway thing in the beginning. Data just exposits for a minute, and then everyone forgets about it, effectively. Other than the, you know, princess problem. You know, the trapped princess problem. I would love to to do more about that. To learn more about these people. About are Are they literally a separate species? Are they only technically a separate species? You know, like how technically some humans are sufficiently different from other humans, right? Because they're just completely different development. I would love to learn more about what kind of cultures they have and you know, what kind of technology they've developed. The specific reasons why they've been in conflict other than just not liking each other. I would love the idea that they have been winding down this war for a while, so the idea of peace is even available. That it would make sense that these two leaders would get together for a political union who didn't love each other, who just wanted to get together and try and end the stupid war that's threatening both of them. And they got together, had this child, spirited her away, made this deal with the Federation. Maybe there's something valuable in this world. Maybe there isn't. Maybe this is the Federation reaching out on a peace mission. Lord knows that's kind of what the Feds are supposed to do, right? Like, there's so much more you could do with that. Like having a lawnmower go right by your window. <laughs> and they do nothing with it other than, hey, it's a Wesley romance plot and it's a princess who's trapped plot. I want, oh, God, I, I would love for them to really do more with that. Um, but I'm afraid I really don't have anything else to make. I, I love the premise. I love the Elasimorphs. I love the idea of Wes opening up. They don't do anything with all three of these, which I'm left with a very disinteresting and dull episode. Hopefully next week's will be better. I actually have the next one right here. So what is it? It's going to be Contagion. I will see you there, guys.